Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would be turning to Hebrews chapter 6, and as you're turning there, uh, we'll be dismissing any children who uh, will be participating in our children's class. You'll be at the, uh, for you, back left-hand corner there. You can meet Ben and Megan, your leaders back there, and they will help you into the class. Uh, While they're making their way there, again, if you would be turning to Hebrews chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 8. And so as we do uh, every week, uh, I'll read our passage for us, and then we will take a moment to pray and to ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth of his word. So read with me now, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles and is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we just pause for a brief moment and ask for your help. Father, first and foremost, we want to just express our gratitude and thankfulness for the redeeming work of Christ in our place, for his righteous life that was lived in in our place, for the death that he died in our place, taking the wrath and condemnation that we deserved on himself. We are thankful for the power of his resurrection, that we one day will join him in that very resurrection. Father, we are thankful that Jesus right now is at your right hand, interceding for us. He is our advocate, and we are thankful that you have by your grace to us, sent your spirit to dwell within us that we might have understanding of your word and the truth that you have for us this morning. And so, Father, what we are asking you to do right now, we acknowledge is what you have already promised to do for us, which is that you would be at work in us by the power of your spirit through the truth of your word, changing us and conforming us more and more to the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. Father, this passage is particularly challenging, it's particularly difficult, it is particularly convicting. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me to let the weight of this warning, this passage, lie up on us 
while at the very same time placing full trust and confidence in the promises that you have made to us. And so, Father, we, we simply ask for your help. I ask that you would allow me to rightly interpret your word and that you would use this morning for the glory of your name and the good of your people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in, uh, in many ways, uh, this sermon for chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, can be seen as a continuation, kind of a, a part two in some ways from last week's sermon. So uh, last week, for those of you who may not have been here, we looked at chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And, and in that, we saw that there are dangers of spiritual immaturity, things like it cuts you off from the depths of God's word because the author Hebrews said, when you're spiritually immature, uh, all that we can feed on is milk and not, not the solid food of the word of God that we need. And, and we saw that being spiritually immature can make us vulnerable to false teaching. It can keep us from having the ability, as uh, uh, verse 14 said, it can keep us from having the ability to distinguish between good and evil, truth and and lies. And so because of those dangers, because of those concerns that the author of Hebrews had for us in verses 11 through 14, he then moves into chapter 6 verse 1 and he says, therefore, in light of those dangers, in light of those issues, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, pursue maturity in Christ because these dangers exist. Therefore, we need to press ahead toward Jesus and toward maturity and knowledge of God's word and character and person. Now, we've talked about this before. I believe, actually, we talked about it uh, earlier, uh, earlier in the book of Hebrews. But just to remind us, the faithful Christian life must be one of movement forward. You can see that theme running throughout the book of Hebrews. You can see it in chapter 12, right? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It is, a, it is a life of movement toward something. And so if we are stagnant or stale or even moving backward, we are not uh, living in obedience to Jesus Christ. And a, an obedient life, uh, live for the glory of Jesus Christ, is a life that is moving forward toward maturity. Now that means different things for different people because we're all in different stages of our relationship with Jesus. We're all in different stages of, of for how long we've been a Christian. But all of us ought to be moving toward Jesus. We ought to be closer to him, know more of him, and know more of his word this year than we did last year. And we ought to know more next year than we know this year. It's not to say we never have rough spots or stagnant seasons, but the overall trajectory of our life should be one of pursuing maturity in Christ. That's what the author has called us to last week and it's what he's calling us to again this week, which is why our mission statement as the church says what it says, which is based on Colossians 1, 28 and 29. But let me, let me just read for us again what our mission statement for Christ Fellowship Liesel says. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ through gospel proclamation biblical teaching, intentional discipleship, and love for one another that we may present all mature in Christ. That's our goal. 
That's the goal of this church as a whole. It's the goal of the elders as we seek to care for you. Our goal is that last phrase of our mission statement, that we're going to do all that we do so that we may present all mature in Christ. That's the biblical call on you as members who are called to care for one another. It's the biblical call on us as pastors or as we are called to care for you, that everyone whom the Lord places under our care, we will seek to present them mature in Christ. In other words, to put it more bluntly, our goal as elders is to be sure by God's grace that when you draw your last breath, when I draw my last breath, we will do so holding firm to our original confidence with our eyes fixed on Jesus and with our hope firmly on his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's what we want for every single person in this room. Now, there are many other goals we ought to have as a church. There are many other goals you ought to have individually that we ought to have for you, that I ought to have for myself, right? We want to honor God with our finances. We want to honor God in the workplace, and we need to know how to do those things. We want to glorify Christ in our relationships. We want to be on mission and evangelize our community, right? We need to be about all of these things, but if we run past the main thing, then none of those things matter. If we're not working to every day, every week to keep your eyes on Jesus, then we'll never accomplish all those other things. All of those must be motivated by and built upon the foundation of fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ and pursuing maturity in him. And most assuredly, all of those things are part of pursuing maturity in Jesus Christ. But our love and affection and worship of Jesus must be what motivates us and drives us forward together as his people. Therefore, our primary goal together must be to pursue maturity in Christ so that we will at the last day be standing with our faith in Jesus and also so that we may be useful now for the kingdom of God. So what this passage gives us is two clear ways we must move to, toward maturity. Two, two clear things we must keep in mind as we move toward spiritual maturity. Number one, we must move beyond basic Christian doctrine. We must move beyond basic Christian doctrine. So those are the two things we need to keep in mind as we pursue maturity in Christ. We must move beyond basic Christian doctrine. We must heed the warnings of Scripture. So let's look at this, this first concept. We must move beyond basic Christian doctrine. Look there with me again at verses 1 through 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now just as a reminder, the whole reason that 
the author of Hebrews has had to take a break to talk about the need for Christian maturity is because he began in the first uh, four and a half or five and a half chapters, right? Here we are in the middle of chapter five. He's been building up to this significant moment, talking about the glories of Jesus Christ. He's more glorious than the angels. He's more glorious than Moses. He's more glorious than Aaron. He is the great high priest. And he's getting ready in the middle of chapter five to explain how it is that Jesus can be our high priest when he came from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of the Levites. How in the world could Jesus be our great high priest? He's going to explain all this, and he reaches back into this really obscure Old Testament biblical figure named Melchizedek, and he's getting ready to explain how all of that works, that Jesus is a priest after the order of this guy, this Melchizedek guy, and then he realizes, oh wait, I don't think you're quite ready for that depth of biblical knowledge. And so he pauses and says, I've got a lot to say about this. You see that in chapter 5, verse 11. I want to say a lot about this, but it's hard to explain because you have become, you've become dull of hearing. And we're not able to, to move forward. And so that's why he says in verse 12 of chapter 5, For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He's saying, look, we've got to go back over this all over again and teach you all over again because you're, you're kind of stuck here. You advanced, but now you've reverted. And, and that's the exact same kind of thing he's referring to in the first verse of chapter 6 when he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. He's saying these are things you ought to already know. These are things you should already know well. We're ready to move into the deep waters of God's word where you can grow and mature in Christ. You've got you've to move beyond these, these elementary doctrines. And so what the author of Hebrews does is provide a clear rebuke to the Hebrews. And it's a clear rebuke to us if we're remaining in spiritual infancy and we're not moving forward toward maturity in Jesus Christ. And what I love, by the way, is he says in verse 1, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. That, that word, that verb, to go on, is, is in the passive tense in the original language, which means that, that we need to be brought along to maturity. It's something that, that God does in us and through us and empowers us to do. He, he brings us along to maturity. So, so what is it exactly that the author means in verse 1 when he talks about the elementary doctrine of Christ and why is it that he says we should leave it right that in some ways when you read that passage I don't know about you but it's troublesome to me I, there's lots I love about the basic doctrines of the gospel that I don't want to leave behind so so what does he mean does he mean to leave it behind what is he saying when he says to leave the elementary doctrines of Christ well, he doesn't mean that we ought to forget about it, nor does he mean that it's unimportant. Because something is elementary doesn't mean that it's not important. Instead, he's simply saying, once you've learned those basic elementary doctrines, you need to build up on that foundation. You can't just do the foundation and leave it there for the rest of your life. No, you, you need to get that in place and then build on top of it and add to it and move on from it. Right, for example, 
here we are at the beginning of the school year, right? Students are heading back to all kinds of different schools, elementary school, high school, colleges, seminaries. They're kicking off a new year. Now imagine there's a high school student who uh, is entering his senior year. He wants to go to college to, to be an engineer. And so um, he signed up to take calculus his senior year to prepare him to head off to school to pursue an engineering degree. Uh, an engineering degree. And he walks into the classroom, he gets settled in, he's really excited about what he's going to learn this year in calculus. He had pre-calculus the semester before, and so the teacher starts off and writes a, a problem up on the board that all the pre-cal uh, pre students were very familiar with, should, should be able to solve that problem uh, uh, simply with, with, with no issues. And so everyone in the class begins feverishly working on the problem. But this, this one student who was so excited about it seems to be really struggling with the problem. He doesn't seem to be able to solve it. And so the teacher comes over to him and, and kind of asks, you know, what's going on? What is it that's hanging you up about this problem? He says, well, I'm just stuck right here because I can't figure out what three plus two is. Right? Three plus two is an elementary math concept, but you better be able to do it, right? It's not unimportant to be able to pursue greater and more important things, right? Engineers better know addition. If they don't, then this building is going to collapse on us at some point this morning because I guarantee you there's a problem in the structure. So when he says elementary doctrines to, to move on from them, he doesn't mean that those elementary doctrines are unimportant that we shouldn't continue to talk about them, that we shouldn't continue to remind ourselves of them. But he's just saying, if you're going to be an engineer, for example, you can't just only learn addition. And if you're going to move forward, you've got to move on from it, but you've got to have it in place. That's what he means here when he says that we need to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. We've got to build on these foundational, basic theological truths that we all ought to know. And then he lists out exactly what he has in mind when he talks about some examples of the elementary doctrines of Christ. So there are three pairs that he refers to here. Three, three pairs of elementary doctrines. So the first you see there in verse 1. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. What he means here is, look, when you come to Christ, Lord willing, very early on, you need to learn that your righteous works add nothing to your salvation. That your sin-inspired uh, good works are not good in God's eyes. That you need the righteous life of Christ to stand in your place. And you need to repent of those dead works and turn to Christ in faith, right? These are, these are the very beginnings of your walk with Christ. This is basic elementary doctrine of the gospel. We have to, to repent of our dead works that cannot earn our righteousness and turn to faith in Christ where we find the righteousness of Christ that stands in our place, that we lean and depend on the righteousness of Jesus, and then the second pair he gives us there in verse 2 of instruction about washings, the, the laying on of hands. Now, there's some debate, even my Bible has a footnote here that 
translates washings as baptisms. And so exactly what is being talked about when the word baptisms or washings is used. But I think the, the, the main point here in this second pair is that these were symbolic actions, right? Washings, baptisms, laying on of hands, whatever is meant behind that, that these are symbolic actions, that, that washings, that baptisms represent the cleansing of sin, that the, the laying on of hands, whether we do it as we pray over someone for their healing or we pray over someone as they're being commissioned out as a missionary to go somewhere, we, we may place our hands on them as a symbol of our care for them and of the direction of our prayer for them. But there's nothing magic about putting your hands on someone. There's nothing magic about washing someone's feet or immersing them and water. And these are just basic Christian doctrines that we ought to know very early on, that these are not magical moments. They are symbolic and they have theological truths lying underneath them. And then the final pair we see there at the end of verse 2, the, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. You see, here's a really good example, because when you think about eternal judgment, you think, well, that's a really important doctrine. Of course it is. It's really important. But he's saying, look, at the very same time, it is important, but it's also basic. That God is the sovereign creator of this world. He is the sovereign judge of all mankind. And we are responsible to him. We will be judged by him. There will be an eternal judgment. It is a basic Christian doctrine. If that is not true, then there is no need for the gospel. There is no need for the death of Jesus. If this simple statement is not true, that there will be an eternal judgment. He's saying, look, let's quit bickering about whether or not we're going to be resurrected from the dead. It's a fact. You one day are going to gain a glorified body through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you're going to dwell in the new heavens and then you are full of joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And you're going to make it through the eternal judgment because of the righteous life of Christ that will stand in your place. Because he took the sin and condemnation and wrath of God. This is the basic foundation truths, foundational truths of the gospel. And he is saying to us, yes, cling to those things. Hold on to those things. But there is so much more to learn about who God is and the truth of his word. And so let's move on to maturity. Let's pursue the depths of God's word. Let's not be afraid as God's people to wade into the deep waters. Let's not be afraid to deal with the difficult passages. Let's not be afraid to venture into difficult theological concepts and sometimes use big theological words. We're not going to be ashamed of that in this church because there is a need for us to pursue maturity in Christ together. Because there's too much danger to remaining immature. There is safety in the pursuit of spiritual maturity. And the author of Hebrews says to us in verse 3 that we will do this if God permits. We will do this if God permits. So what... What does he mean here? Does God not want us to move forward into spiritual maturity? What does he mean by if God permits? 
Well, I think this is simply the author acknowledging how all of us ought to speak in the future tense. Right? It's what James tells us in chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such, such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Everything we say in the future tense is contingent upon the Lord willing it to be so. We are not even guaranteed to be alive tomorrow. It is if God permits it. It is Lord willing. And so we lean into his sovereign kind providence, his providential hand over us. And we will pursue maturity together if God permits it. And if we follow his instructions to us, he is given us uh, glorious promises that he will in fact bring us toward maturity if we are serious disciples of his word. And look, it's why we in this church want to be committed to uh, a few different things, one of which is consistent expository preaching where we move through books of the Bible section by section because we want you to grow in your knowledge and understanding of the word. We want you to be equipped to go home and to know how to read your own Bible and to understand how sentences work together in God's Word and how this paragraph connects to the next paragraph. So we're committed to expository preaching. We want to be serious about discipleship. We talk about it a lot in this church, but we want to encourage each of you to pursue one-to-one -one or, or one-to-two or a small group of three or four discipleship relationships with others in this church it doesn't have to be complicated. You can get together for coffee every other week and just read through the book of John together a few verses at a time, a paragraph at a time, and talk about it together. It's why we're having the Life Group kickoff next week because we want to encourage everyone, plead with everyone to be a part of a Life Group in this church where you can gather with a group of believers in the middle of the week in the evening to talk about this sermon or sermons like this, to, to challenge one another, to pray for one another, to care for one another, right? These are all ways that we're going to move toward maturity together, that we're going to move on from these elementary doctrines of Christ. We're going to have a women's Bible study uh, beginning this fall. Lord willing, down the road, we're going to begin to have Sunday morning Bible studies. We're kicking off our Awana Children's Ministry in the middle of September. Yes, we're doing it because we want to reach the community. We want lost children to come, but we're also doing it because that particular ministry encourages our children to memorize God's word and to hide it in their hearts and to understand more of what it means. Right, this is what we have to be about. And Lord willing, if we commit ourselves to all of these things, we will move toward maturity in Christ. This we will do if God permits and may he make it so among us. But the second thing we need to keep in mind as we move toward maturity, the second way we pursue spiritual maturity is that we must heed the warnings of Scripture. We must heed the warnings of Scripture. They are in the Bible for a reason. They are not to be ignored. 
We must read them and be aware of them and heed them. So look with me at verses 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a hard passage. This is a difficult passage to work through to understand exactly what is meant because it brings up all kinds of questions. And I want to try to deal with all these questions. Questions like exactly what kind of person is this passage talking about when it describes this person in this way? Is he saying that we can lose our salvation? What does it mean in verse 4 when he says it's impossible to restore them again to repentance? Right? There's all kinds of complicated questions in verses 4 through 8 that we have to deal with. But, but before we get into that, just take, let's take a step back and big picture, just be sure we understand what warning is being laid out in front of us here. What he is saying is there is a category of people, and Lord willing, we're going to deal with who's in that category, but there's a category of people who can respond to the gospel, who can respond to Jesus in such a way that they fall away from him, that they walk away from the church, that they walk away from the truth of God's word. And when they do so, it is as if they are crucifying again the Son of God and holding him up to a contempt. And because of that, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. So that's, that's big picture, just a summary of what's being said here. Now that, that introduces, right, a dozen different questions about this passage. Now I do want you to, to notice that that there's a shift, there's a shift in pronouns that happens here. So in verses one through three, the author of Hebrews has said, let us lead the elementary doctrine of Christ. Verse three, this we will do, right? He's, he's talking to his audience, the, the Hebrew church to whom he wrote. He said, look, we're in this together. This is about us. But notice the shift in verse four. He says, it is impossible in the case of those. He's talking about a a different group of people than the audience to whom he is writing, right? He's, by use of pronoun, he's now speaking in a different way. It's no longer we, it's those people. So that's just something to keep in mind. Now, when he describes those people, he gives five different phrases to describe who they are. Let's just, again, I know we just read it, but, but now that you've heard me say five phrases, so these are five descriptions of these people, right? You see that there beginning in the second half of verse 4. Number one, they have once been enlightened. Two, they've tasted the heavenly gift. Number three, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. Number four, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. And number five, they have tasted the powers of the age to come. So that's that's the description of these people. So, so who are they? Are they true believers? Is that a description of a believer? 
Or are they someone who, who thinks they're a believer, but they're not actually a believer, but then that forces the question on us, if they're not a believer, then how are these things true of them? Now, there are a lot of working theories about this passage, different interpretations of exactly what's going on here. But here at the beginning, I just want to remove one of those as a possibility that I don't think works at all. And one theory is that the author of Hebrews is talking about a hypothetical situation. He's referring to a, a, a hypothetical Christian. In other words, he's saying, look, look, we know that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is true, that once saved, always saved, that all those who belong to Christ are going to be kept by him. But hypothetically... If someone were to fall away, if that was theoretically possible, then it would be impossible to renew them again to repentance. So that's, that's one of the views of this passage. But here's the problem, and it's a serious problem. A hypothetical situation that can never happen is not really a warning. Right? There's no need for it to be in the scriptures if it couldn't happen, right? If it's purely hypothetical. In other words, a few, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, we were in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, visiting my mother-in-law. And uh, we had not taken the kids to the beach in a number of years. And so we decided one day, we're, you know, we're going to go to the beach. And so we took them. And as we're walking down, you know, I'm reminded there's a big lifeguard stand there. And they have you know, different colors representing the different dangers that exist in the water for that day. How bad is the rip current? What do you need to be aware of? And so can, can you imagine being on the beach that day? You're walking in with your kids. And there's the lifeguard stand. The warning flag is there. And the highest level of warning is out there, right? And it's the, the rip currents are terrible. You need to really be aware. And then you read the sign. And it says, beware. The rip current is extremely dangerous. Swim at your own risk if you have the ability to fly and are from the planet Mars. what would you do? You would get in the water because it doesn't apply to you, right? It's a hypothetical impossibility. Nobody going to the beach can fly or is from the planet Mars. It's a useless, pointless warning. And so for this to be a hypothetical warning simply makes no sense. It would have no purpose to be in God's word. So let's just remove that category altogether. This is an actual group of people that the author of Hebrews is talking about. Now, who are they? Who is this group of people? Well, let's ask the first question. Is it believers? Because if I came up to you and said, let, let me describe what it's like to trust in Christ. <clears throat> When you trust in Christ, it means that you have been enlightened. It means you've tasted of the heavenly gift. It means you've tasted of the Holy, uh, of, uh, you've shared in the Holy Spirit. You've tasted the goodness of the word of God. and You've tasted the powers of the age to come. And you would say, that's a pretty good description of a follower of Jesus. So is that in fact... What's being addressed? Is that the group that the author of Hebrews is talking about? Because if it is, he says in verse 6 that that group can fall away. 
And when they do so, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. So how do we come to a conclusion about exactly who this is talking about? Well, it's important to keep in mind as we study God's Word, there's a a principle of interpretation of God's Word that says you should allow clear passages to interpret less clear passages. You should allow easier passages of Scripture that are plain in their meaning to hold weight and to help you interpret difficult passages that are hard to understand. And so what I want to do is just remind us of some really crystal to keep us to the very end. That when he adopts us into his family, he doesn't ever kick us out and leave us on the street. Now we could do this for the rest of the morning, but I'm just going to read uh, four passages that remind us of this. We could do 20 of these passages. So just let me remind us how clear it is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that all those who trust in Christ will be kept by him. John chapter 10, verses 20 through, 27 through 30. This is Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now we could stop there, right? That is crystal clear. No one can snatch us out of the grip of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, no one can snatch us out of the grip of the Father's hand, right? All those who Jesus gives eternal life are kept by him. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You will be brought along to maturity. He will complete what he has started in you. It's exactly what Paul also says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So just pause there. I just want you to hear all that Paul talks about there. May God sanctify you completely. Completely sanctify you. May you be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then right after that, the Apostle Paul says, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Right? There's no ambiguity about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. He will do it. He will complete what he has begun in those who belong to him. And then finally, perhaps, the most well-known passage we can look at to remind us of the truth of the perseverance of the saints is Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. The Apostle Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now look, there are numerous other places we could look. Again, we don't have time to do all of them, but, but these four on their own are enough to say it is crystal clear that when we come to faith in Christ, when we are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son, when we, are, when we become the adopted children of God through faith, we are always the adopted children of God by faith, and he will never abandon us. So therefore, therefore, this cannot be referring to true believers. Because all who trust in Christ are kept by him. He is faithful. He will surely do it. So then, other places in Scripture that there is a category of people who are in the community of God's people. There's a group of people who are in fellowship with believers who believe they are following Jesus, but either by the evidence eventually of their life, they prove that they were never really followers of Christ or at the judgment seat of Christ, it is revealed that they never trusted in him to begin with. Right, we see that, for example, in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, John is saying to us in 1 John 2, 19, that, that when a group of people or an individual walks away from the... It's not that they had Jesus and then lost him. No, what they are proving is that they were not of us to begin with. That they never actually trusted in Jesus. That's what the evidence of their life has brought to bear. Or as we looked at a few weeks ago, one of the most sobering passages in all of scripture when Jesus speaks in Matthew 7 verses 21 through 23 not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day many will say to me Lord Lord do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name <clears throat> And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or to just use the verbiage from Hebrews and place it into Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to me, I was a part of the church and had been enlightened and I tasted the heavenly gift and I shared in the Holy Spirit and I tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
So the scripture teaches that this is a group of people who have experienced these things and then they've fallen away and in their falling away, they have proven that they were never truly believers. So how can these things be true of them? Well, what the author is referencing is those who are around Christianity but don't have a genuine faith. What he means is they've been exposed to the gospel They've heard the truth of God's word, that they're not a group of people that have never heard the gospel. No, these are people who are well aware of the gospel. They've been taught that they have a head knowledge of it. They could perhaps even explain it to you academically. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift, meaning they've been around God's people. They've experienced the good gifts of the Spirit at work among His people, right? They've, they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit in God's people as they've been around them. They've experienced the goodness of God. They've seen the work of God evident in other people's lives as they've fellowshiped with other believers Verse 5, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They've seen the Word of God with their own eyes. They've seen it transform lives. They've seen it encourage people. They've seen it lift people out of darkness and into light. They've seen it fill their uh, uh, people around them with hope. They've even tasted the powers of the age to come as they've witnessed the kingdom of God present here on earth. They've witnessed heaven at work here on earth. That They've seen the powers of the age to come at work among his people. You see, they've seen it all. They've been a part of it all. And yet, they walk away from it. Verse 6, they've fallen away. And he says, that group of people, that group of people who has had every opportunity to trust in Christ, to repent of their sin and turn to him in faith and live a life for the glory of his name and put sin to death and pursue holiness and run towards spiritual maturity, but they never do it. And they eventually just walk away from the faith altogether. For those people, he does use the language that it is impossible to restore them again to repentance because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What it means there is that they might as well be the Roman soldier mocking Jesus on the cross and driving the nails through his hands and feet because they're treating him as nothing more than a common criminal. A normal man who deserves to be hung on the cross for making outrageous claims that they don't believe to be true. They're holding him up to contempt to say, I know everything about you, Jesus. I've learned it all. I've seen the word of God at work in other people. I've seen your Holy Spirit at work in other people. I just don't want you. I don't believe you. I'm walking away from you. That's what he means when he says that these people are holding Jesus up to contempt and therefore when they do that when they treat Jesus with such scorn and contempt then he says it's impossible to restore them to repentance because he's saying look there's salvation to be found in no one else there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved and so if they're going to treat Jesus with contempt there's nowhere else for them to turn 
Look, it's not to say that there aren't going to be people who are going to walk away from the church and walk away from Jesus who will not then repent and come back to him. I've seen it happen. You've seen it happen. Praise be to God that it happens. But there does come a place, a time when their hearts are so hardened that God gives them over to their sin. And he allows them to continue in their hardness and in their rebellion. So, is this a real warning for you? It's a real warning. Because the author of Hebrews wants his original audience, God wants us, as we read it here today, to understand that this could be true of any person in this room, including me. And that the only way we must evaluate our lives is by the fruit that our lives produce. And we need to heed this warning and not allow uh, Satan to deceive us. And we, we must not allow ourselves to be deceived and to lie to ourselves that we're following Jesus when there's no evidence of our life to indicate that it's the case. You can be around the people of God. You can come here every single Sunday morning. and You can see him at work and every person sitting in this room except you. And if there is no fruit of the gospel at work in your life, you need to heed this warning this morning, brothers and sisters. It's why it's here. Not to condemn you, but to rescue you. So that you will turn to Christ in faith. So that you will leave behind the elementary doctrines and pursue maturity in Christ. Look, I love, I love the nature of God's word. Who delivers to us both radical promises, right? I'm going to complete what I started in you. Nothing can separate you from my love. And yet at the very same time, heed the warning. You see, one without the other would drive us off the cliff into despair. You see, if all we had was the promises without the warnings, you know what you and I would be in our sin nature? Lazy, indifferent, uh, ungodly, indifferent to holiness Christians, right? Well, God's promised it, so it doesn't matter how I live. I can lean on his promises. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to satisfy every desire, carnal desire that I have, because it doesn't matter because Jesus has said he's going to keep me. If we didn't have the promises and all we had was the warnings, it would turn us into a bunch of legalists, right, who feel like, to get to heaven, I've got to be good. I've got to be holy, right? My good works are going to earn my way to heaven. Look, all these warnings make it clear that that's the only way I'm going to get there. By my righteousness and by my works. But you see, the beauty of God's word is, Jesus says, I'm going to keep you. It's my doing, not yours. I'm the faithful one. Even when you're unfaithful, I'm going to keep being faithful. I'm going to sustain you, forgive you. I'm advocating for you. I'm interceding for you. I pray for you even when you don't know what words to say through the groanings of the Holy Spirit. These rock-solid, sure promises of God that we can lean on in our darkest days. And yet at the same time, he says, 
if there's no fruit in your life, beware that those promises may not apply to you. Pursue holiness. Don't be satisfied with disobedience and indifference and stagnation and immaturity in, in the gospel. And that's the substance of the illustration that the author of Hebrews closes with, which is what we'll close with today. Verses 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, right? So, so the illustration here is you've, you've soaked in the truth of God's word and in teaching and discipleship and the spiritual disciplines, right? For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Look, that blessing comes when there's fruit in your life, when there's evidence that you're following Jesus, right? Jesus said, they will know you by your fruit. But if that very same land, verse 8, right, this very same land that has rain poured upon it, right, it is not drought conditions. Everything has been cultivated and prepared. It's been nourished and kept. If that very same land, in verse 8, bears, bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned to face judgment. Ultimately, what God is saying to us here is don't let simple community with God's people fool you into thinking you actually belong to God's people. Church attendance, life group involvement, Bible study involvement, volunteering does not make you belong to Jesus Christ. Now those are fruits, those are good, glorious fruits of the gospel. Don't let Satan deceive you. Evaluate your life, look at it. Are you pursuing Christ in your day-to-day -day life? Is there fruit of the gospel at work? And look, friends, often it's hard to know when you look at your own life. And it's why we need each other. Because there's going to be times where I'm in darkness and I feel like I'm not walking in obedience to Jesus and I'm frustrated and I'm scared, right? I may be lacking assurance in those moments and that's when I need you to come beside me and Lord willing, you see some fruit in my life I can't see with my own eyes. And you say, Jonathan, look, I know you're struggling right now, but I want to encourage you, man. There is so much fruit coming out of you. I want to encourage you in that. And by the very same token, we need to love each other enough to honestly say, I don't see it in you, friends. That's what we committed to when we read that covenant a few moments ago. That's what we've committed to do for one another in this church on a weekend and week out basis. Look, we're going to dive into verses 9 through 12 next week, but I just want to leave you with the encouraging verse of verse 9. The author says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Those are gloriously encouraging words. That the things that belong to salvation, to true Christians, those who have fruit in their lives, are glorious. 
It's not being burned in the end. It's experiencing the full joy of Jesus Christ now and forevermore. And I want that to be true of all of us. I want us to speak of better things, things that belong to salvation because we all belong to Jesus. But this warning is meant to drive us toward that. So don't move too quickly into verse 9. Spend some time meditating on verse 8 in the days to come. And let it drive you toward Jesus for the glory of his name. So by God's grace, let's heed this warning this morning together as God's people. And let's pursue maturity together for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. We are thankful for the bold, clear promises of your word that you will keep us to the very end, to the very last day. You will complete what you have started. You are faithful. You will surely do it. No one can snatch us out of your hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You have made clear promises to us. And yet at the very same time, Father, as I pray, you would teach us to lean into those promises. I pray that you would give us the ability to honestly evaluate our lives. And to ask ourselves, are we displaying the fruit of the gospel? Are our lives different than our neighbors around us, than our coworkers around us? Do we exude the love of Christ? Are we, are we living a Christ-honoring, glorifying life? Are we pursuing holiness and striving to put sin to death in our lives? Father, give us the courage, the clear-mindedness to ask ourselves those questions and pursue answers to them. I even pray, Father, that some of those conversations can happen between us in these days to come and in these weeks to come, that we would love one another enough to engage in serious conversations about these things. But ultimately, Father, we are thankful for the gift of this warning to us, for the gift that it is that drives us closer to Jesus. And I pray that that is exactly what has been accomplished among us by the power of your spirit through the truth of your word this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.